The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, and welcome to Episode 8, Season 10. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, all of them from author Brandon Faircloth, about grisly games, demonic doorways, vicious visitors, and malevolent machines. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail... So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. Our first tale tonight, from Brandon Faircloth, concerns a group of college students trying out a new game based on something read in a medieval text. Trouble is, something may be lost in translation. Without further ado, I present to you Sack of Knives. It knows what you hate, and it hates what you love. I originally heard about Sack of Knives in one of my medieval literature texts. The class had sounded interesting out of my options that quarter, but two weeks in I was already wishing I'd taken another round of poetry or creative writing. Part of it was the professor was chronically dry and boring as he gave a canned lecture he obviously regurgitated for the last twenty years. But most of it was the language itself. It was so archaic and hard to read 
and I already knew I sucked at foreign language. Some of the books were modernized, but most were just littered with footnotes in tiny block paragraphs longer than the text they were explaining. And, of course, when I finally saw something that sounded cool, there were no notes to be found. It was in the middle of a story fragment about a village that fell under a curse of some kind. People were going crazy, maybe, or their cows were all dying. Hell if I know. The accompanying woodcut made it look bad, though. Still, it was kind of boring and dumb, and I was about to give up when a phrase caught my eye. If I wasn't wrong, it read as Sack of Knives. Like I said, there was no footnote, and when I went to the index, the term wasn't listed. I looked on the internet, but there was nothing about it there either. My interest was already waning, but then an idea occurred to me. The professor of the class was always telling people to ask if we had any questions, be it after class or during his student office hours. No way was I doing that, but maybe if I fired off a quick email asking about it, he would think I gave a damn about a stupid class. I wasn't a suck-up, but I didn't mind a little padding in case I tanked on an essay at some point. So I looked up his faculty email and asked him what the term meant before putting away my books and heading out to Jeff's party. I literally didn't think about it again that night. The party itself kind of sucked. It was one of those deals where there were too many people for it to be fun. So my little social circle wound up just hanging out together, even though it was in my friends Jeff and Madison's house. They were both grad students, and Jeff was in a pissy mood about his thesis getting shot down. This led to me and others in our group taking turns whining about people who were being assholes, bosses that were unfair, boyfriends and girlfriends that were unfaithful or controlling parents and siblings that didn't understand our individual and collective plights. We were all drunk and only half serious as we took turns trying to melodramatically one-up each other's woes. And by the end of the night, we were all so exhausted from laughing so much that I wound up falling asleep on their floor. When I got back to my dorm room the next morning, I saw I had an email. Greetings, Mr. Holden. So glad to see you taking an interest in the peculiarities of our medieval friends from the distant past. The phrase you referred is actually quite interesting. It refers to an obscure pranking custom that was common in parts of Europe for a time. It went as follows. A group of friends, or like-minded ne'er-do-wells, would gather together and put their names, or, given the extremely low rates of literacy, other identifying marks or objects in a sack or satchel. Either way, the idea was that you were identifying a target for the prank, usually an enemy. Once everyone had put a person in the sack, you all drew one back out. Your own excluded, of course. I say, of course, because the purpose of the sack of knives was to harass or even hurt someone you hated without it being tied to you personally. 
These were typically small communities where most everyone knew each other, and the risk of being seen and recognized while journeying to and from, breaking someone's fence, or poisoning their feed was significantly higher than it would be today. If someone saw an enemy lurking around their property and suddenly their cow got out or their chickens died, well, it would immediately be suspicious. A sack of knives provided a measure of protection from such scrutiny, and generally it was limited to small pranks that wouldn't raise too much ire, though there were always exceptions. Once the prankster finished some act against their target, they would go back to the sack, usually hidden in a place everyone in the game knew, and put a stick inside with the name or identifier tied to it. This symbolized the knife they used to kill their friend's enemy. The game wasn't over until all the sticks and artifacts were in the sack. I believe there were variations of the rules over the years, but generally no winner was ever specified. I suppose their indirect revenge against those they hated was reward enough. I thought about responding back, but decided against it. It was cool of him to respond so quickly, but there was a difference between getting some brownie points and becoming pen pals with a lit super nerd. Laughing at the idea, I closed my laptop and got ready for work. It was a week later when I mentioned the sack of knives to Jeff and Madison over dinner. I'd brought it up as a funny story, but the more I described the email, the more interested they became. Before I knew it, they called up Paul and Allison, two of our other friends who, based on the earlier party conversation, had clear axes to grind with someone. They brought along their friend Marty, who had just been fired from an internship, for smoking weed in the parking lot. I tried to put the brakes on before people came over and got into some weird party game, but Madison wasn't hearing it. She said it was the best idea she'd heard in months, that it sounded cool, fun, and very satisfying. But the key, she noted, was having enough participation. Winking at me, she turned and smirked at Jeff. It's like that Hitchcock movie, right? Crisscross. Three days later, I was carving the word whore into the hood of a stranger's car. We used a knockoff purse and index cards, but I suppose it worked well enough. I pulled Allison's former best friend, who had apparently slept with Allison's high school boyfriend. I wanted to ask if Paul, Allison's current boyfriend, was okay with her still being so hung up on that past relationship, but I felt like it wouldn't go over well, so I left it alone. Instead, I dutifully folded up my note and tucked it in my pocket, planning on waiting till later to worry if I was going to go through with a prank or not. But letting go of the thought wasn't so easy. From the time I got the name and address, I was preoccupied with doing something to them. It's not like I'm a mean-spirited guy or anything, but it was just dumb as it sounds. It felt like I'd made a promise I had to keep. I went back to Jeff's house after I was done and found the purse hanging in the tool shed. Below it, there were three butter knives with rubber bands around them. Cute. I guess the other three had already filled the sack. 
And when I put my own in, I saw I was right. I wondered who had got my own special little request and what they'd done. I found out soon enough. Jeff? Jeff's dead? I squeezed the phone tighter as the ground seemed to sway under me. What? What do you mean? Madison's voice was high and brittle when she spoke again. I mean, he's dead. He had your guy. Calvin Egger was your guy, right? I slumped down onto the couch, barely able to breathe. Yeah, yeah, he was my guy. Just this junkie I roomed with as a freshman. He bailed first quarter, stole my laptop. I could never prove it, but I knew it was him. And he's a townie, so I still see him around sometimes. I blinked, coming back to the conversation. But how? How is Jeff dead? He apparently tried to run that guy off the road. Well, he did run him off the road. The Calvin guy got messed up. They say they're life-flighting him to somewhere. But Jeff went off the road, too. He hit a tree. The last word trailed off into a low moan. I don't know what to say. Jeff would never do anything like that. There wasn't a mean or crazy bone in his body. It, it didn't make any... The phone clicked and went dead. I tried calling her back, but there was no answer. Turns out there was a good reason for that. She had shot herself in the head. In the past five days, two of the other three people have turned up dead as well. One by suicide, the other was shot while trying to burn down a hardware store. As for Paul, well, the police are still looking for him in connection with an aggravated assault where he allegedly broke an old man's legs with a metal softball bat. And me? I'm currently a person of interest in a rape case. Not because I have any connection to the victim whatsoever, or because the woman has been able to give a clear description of anyone, but because my car was seen in the neighborhood the night it happened, and a man matching my description was seen by a couple walking their dog. The man was apparently carving the word whore into the victim's car. I'm not superstitious, but I'm not stupid either. This wasn't all a coincidence, and the thing that connected it all was that stupid game a game I learned about from my professor. So I emailed him repeatedly, but I got no response. After two days of waiting, I called his office and left a voicemail. To my surprise, I got a call back that afternoon. Mr. Browning? Um, yeah, this is Professor Miller. It is, yes. I got your voicemail. You sounded very upset, but I couldn't follow what you were talking about. You mentioned something in the reading? I sucked in a breath and tried to keep my voice calm. Yes, like I told you before. It was in the coursework last month, the story about the cursed village, the thing that talked about the sack of knives game. There was a long pause, and I could hear the flutter of pages as he spoke again. I... I'm not sure what you're talking about. I know the story you're referencing, but... Just a minute. Uh, yes, I think I found the line. Siaks of knives, right? Um, if you say so. 
You called it sack of knives in the email, just like I did. But you have to know more than you email. I frowned. Was he drunk or something? I didn't have time for this. If he wouldn't give me straight answers, he could talk to the cops about it. Yeah, the email you sent me when I asked about it. Another pause. Uh, Mr. Browning, I haven't sent you an email. I don't use email at all, if I'm honest. Bit of a Luddite, I know, but old dogs and all that. The department secretary will print out critical missives from my account, but I haven't read anything from you or any other student in, well, probably better than a year. The man went on hesitantly. This is part of what I wanted to address. You seemed in both the voicemail and this conversation to be under the impression that we've talked before, but I can assure you we haven't, not outside of the times I might have called you in class. As for this phrase, well, it is interesting, but given your apparent upset, it's certainly not a topic you should be focused on at the moment. Perhaps you should talk to someone if you're feeling very anxious or confused. I stood up and began pacing. That's a load of bull. I have the email. I have proof. Son, I don't doubt you do, but I can tell you it wasn't from me. Maybe you got me mixed up with someone else, or maybe my account got tricked, hacked. I don't know. I wanted to scream at him. But I wasn't sure he was lying. Wasn't it possible someone else had gotten into his account or duped his address somehow? But why? And what did it have to do with the stupid sack of knives game? I really should be going. No, please, Professor. Just, I'll stay calm. Just tell me what you know about the sack of knives game. I could hear him puff out a long breath on the other end. Uh, very well. But if you get upset again, I'm going to let you go. Okay, deal. Okay. As I said, it's not sack of knives. It's siax of knives. Siax was an old English name for a kind of knife, which makes your mistake rather humorous, I suppose. They were single-edged, fixed-blade tools that were sometimes used as weapons in a pinch, particularly among the Saxons, whose name comes from the very same word. As for knave, that's an old word for a trickster or a scoundrel, sometimes a thief or something worse. Worse like what? What does it mean in the book, in that village? I, I don't know that I feel comfortable delving into old superstitions with a man that is so clearly distressed. I stopped pacing. Please, sir, I need to know this, and then I'll let you go. He began again with shaky breath. Siax of Knaves wasn't a game. It was a ritual. In the region it originated in, the knave was a slang term for a demon or devil, an evil spirit. In the ritual, you become a knife of demons, essentially. You were doing wrong against one who had not wronged you, spreading discord and suffering. Part of the practical effect is clear. It was a slightly clever way of trying to get revenge on others indirectly. But the more profound consequence was, supposedly, 
that you were binding yourself to this other, and whether you knew it or not, you were part of the offering to be made. The man cleared his throat. There are stories of this throughout history, of course, places where people become strange, turn on each other. Whole villages and towns have been lost to it, even in more modern times. Today we call it mental illness, mass hysteria, and, well, I'm sure that's the right of it. He laughed uncomfortably. If I may ask, why are you so fascinated by this? You haven't tried it yourself, have you? My vision began to swim as I nodded to an empty room. We, we did. We thought it was a joke, and now my friends are dead, and... He muttered something, then said, more clearly, Do not contact me again. I heard a beep as he hung up. Staring down at my phone, I replayed in my head what he muttered before hanging up, trying to make sense of it. It knows what you hate. It hates what you love. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Sack of Knives, as written by author Brandon Faircloth and performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented featured author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash faircloth, and you'll be redirected to his author page on amazon.com, where you'll find his many books for print, including his fantastic short story collection, The Joker's Wild. By clicking through via that link, a small portion of your purchase goes to us here at Scary Stories Told in the Dark to help make this show possible. Again, that's simplyscarypodcast.com slash faircloth, spelled F-A-I-R-C-L-O-T-H. In Faircloth's The Joker's Wild, you'll discover tales of dark rituals and old gods of devices and packs that exact a terrible price and of childhood terrors, and the slow trickle of blood dripping from that van. The book includes 24 new stories by Brandon, which will pull you deeper and deeper into what he's dubbed a midnight world filled with horrors that will haunt you far past the final page. So don't delay. 
visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash faircloth and pick up your copy of The Joker's Wild today and let Brandon know I sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Up next, we've got yet another dose of darkness coming right up. As we all know, or ought to anyway, a lie can hurt a friendship deeply. Our narrator and our second tale from Brandon Faircloth told one in his childhood, and now as an adult, he hopes he can repair the damage done. Unfortunately for him and his friend, the lie is not the only thing from their childhood that lingers on. Without further ado, I present to you The House Without Doors. When I was 13, I abandoned my best friend. It wasn't intentional, not really. I'd been the one that had been sure of what we had to do, telling our parents, convincing them to tell the police, and promising Virginia that no matter what, when it came down to it, I'd be there with her until the end. And then the end came, and I wasn't. We'd known for months that there was something wrong going on out at the RV park at the edge of town, or, to be more accurate, going on beneath the park. Since the start of that summer, we'd been riding out and spying on the place, and the man that ran it, Remy Lamarck, a low-level crook and dealer that had amassed a small fortune, preying on those without anywhere else to go. Or so everyone in town thought. As me and Virginia had discovered, he was connected to very rich and powerful people, people that would roll up some evenings in cars that cost more than our houses and fawn over the fat, greasy-haired landlord as he smirked and beckoned for them to follow him down the hill to the subterranean entrance he'd carved into the rock some twenty years before. Everyone assumed that was where he stored his drugs. But it was all just rumor and gossip, as no one from the town had ever been inside. At least no one that was ever heard from again. That was what had gotten us interested in the first place. Charlie, one of our friends in class, had lived at the trailer park, and right after school, let out for the summer, he'd track us down at Virginia's, his hands shaking and his face paler than usual. He told us he'd snuck inside that place two nights before, that it was awful down there, bigger than you'd believe, and dark as pitch without light. But darker was still better, he said, because when he turned on his flashlight, he'd seen terrible things. Old bloodstains and scraps of meat and broken bone, strange symbols and statues that were unfamiliar, and yet still made him feel sick inside just to look at them. It was an evil place, and he was scared to live on top of it. But that wasn't why he was telling us about it. What had him so eaten up with worry and fear? No, that was because he thought Remy had seen him when Charlie was running away. We half thought he was pulling our leg, but even after he was gone, warning us to play it cool for now, 
but to tell someone if he went missing. I could tell Virginia was as captivated by the mystery and danger of it all as I was. It was like something out of a movie or book, a great evil discovered by children in a sleepy small town some serial killer or devil worshipper that could only be stopped by the tenacious purity and heroism of some young adventurers. Except it didn't work out quite that way. Charlie went missing a couple days later, and we did tell my mom and Virginia's parents about it. They didn't believe us at first, but we eventually convinced them that we believed Charlie enough that they called the sheriff's office and gave them a summary of what the missing boy had told their children. My mom was told it probably wouldn't be enough for a search warrant, given the source was so young and not available for questioning. But they would definitely go by and talk to Lamarck again. Maybe they did. All we knew was that nothing happened. Charlie wasn't found and no one was arrested, and it wasn't long before most of the town seemed to have forgotten about our friend. Because Charlie was just the first of the people to go missing that summer. By July, Virginia and I focused on little else. The four other people had no direct ties to the park, but we'd started staking out Lamarck when we could, and we'd already seen the conspicuous traffic of fancy people going down into whatever hell the man had constructed down there. And it didn't seem like these were more victims, as on more than one occasion we stayed long enough to see the same people leave again a few hours later. No, it seemed that these people were part of something with Remy Lamarck, a cult or something else, that was using that underground bunker for torture, or murder, or black magic rituals, or perhaps all three. We never saw any of the other missing people, but by the 1st of August, we were sure he was behind it all and that something needed to be done. It was me that decided we needed to make up a lie. Only one of the other victims had been a child. Priscilla Jasper, the ten-year-old girl that neither of us knew beyond knowing what she looked like. We had no real evidence of what had happened to her, but I'd overheard enough from my mom talking on the phone to know that her parents were raising a big stink that more wasn't being done to find their little girl. If Virginia and I went to our parents and told them that we'd gotten into that place underneath the trailer park and found signs that the girl had been there, photos maybe or something else that would tie Lamarck to her disappearance, then the police would have to go look. Virginia was nervous about it from the start, she never lied to her parents, and the idea of getting caught at it or being in bad trouble terrified her. It took a few days to convince her we were doing the right thing, and then we had to plan how we could convince them. We decided to tell our parents at the same time one Sunday afternoon. Virginia would do it on the way back from her church's picnic, and I'd tell my mom when she got home from work. We'd tell them they could check with Virginia and me for proof that we'd seen what we were telling them, and even if they didn't believe us a hundred percent, it should be enough to get them moving. I was going to tell my mom, I swear I was, but then she came home all mad and upset. She'd gotten a call from Virginia's parents an hour earlier. They were at the sheriff's office, 
and deputies were going on their way to get a search warrant for the trailer park. Apparently, Virginia had been very convincing, and by the time she got in and started questioning me, the phone was ringing again. It was Virginia's mother. They'd gotten into the bunker and found the scattered remains of three of the missing people, including parts of Priscilla Jasper's. She didn't tell me all of that, but I could hear Virginia's mother over the phone, her voice high and trembling as she asked my mom what I was saying about it. Lips pressed thin and pale, she hung up and turned toward me, asking if I'd gone with Virginia into that torture chamber, and I wavered for a moment between my loyalty to Virginia and my own worries and fears. I could tell that my mom didn't want it to be true, didn't want me to have a connection to the horror that was unfolding out there and didn't have the energy to deal with the complications it would bring. And what did it matter now, really? The police had found out without me lying about what I'd seen. What was the point of adding to it now? My stomach felt knotted with guilt, but that was just nerves, and I needed to be smart about it. No need for both Virginia and me to risk the trouble and hassle that might come from lying, and Mom was still staring at me, waiting for an answer, a confirmation that this wasn't her problem. And so, so I told the truth, and in the end it didn't matter. No one ever knew she was lying, and they found Remy hanging in his closet later that same evening. There was never any question that he was behind the abductions and murders, and Virginia actually became a bit of a local celebrity for bringing an end to one of the worst periods in the town's history. That didn't matter, though. Things were never the same between Virginia and me. We still hung out from time to time, and after I apologized for bailing and leaving her holding the bag, she never said anything else about it. But that betrayal still sat between us now. An uninvited third wheel that would never give us time alone together or oxygen enough for things to heal. When she moved away the next year, I hated myself that as much as I missed her, the thing I felt most was relief at no longer having a daily reminder that I wasn't quite the person I thought I was or wanted to be. I spent years trying to forget all of that and move on. I went on to become a psychologist and a counselor. I help a lot of people. And in both my professional and private life, I try to be honest and courageous, both for my own sake and for the girl I let down those many years ago. And it does help, if only a little, as though I'm treading just enough water to not drown. And then last month I got a letter from outside of Red Branch, Oregon, it was Virginia, writing me after all this time to see how I was and to invite me to come visit when I was able. My hands trembled as I reread the letter, tears springing to the corners of my eyes. I didn't have a number or email address, so I wrote back instead, sending the letter next day delivery and giving Virginia all my contact information, telling her I'd love to come as soon as she would have me. When she emailed me back two days later, she said she'd look for me that weekend. I spent the flight and drive out to her house, 
vacillating between fear and elation. I hadn't expected her letter and invitation to have such a profound effect on me after so long. And now that I realized how important mending this friendship was to me, I was terrified of doing something wrong to jeopardize that. I'd already decided that whatever was said or done this weekend, I would make every effort to show Virginia that I still cared about her deeply and wanted her in my life again. The thick green of forest seemed to roll on and on around me, tall, imposing trees that seemed dreamlike in the gray afternoon rain. I almost missed the turnoff to Virginia's, but the directions were good and I noticed the road at the last second. Another half mile down a gravel lane and I was at the house. It was an older house, but beautiful too, with a wide front porch and there wasn't a front door. Instead, a flap of clear plastic swayed gently, the bottom of it scritch-scratching back and forth across the threshold. Was she doing renovations, or... Well, it didn't matter. I could ask about that when I got inside. Parking at the end of the lane, I grabbed my bag and headed up to the porch. A woman met me as I reached the plastic tarp, and I tried to hide my expression as I smiled at her. It was Virginia. It had to be her, but she looked so much older. Not 35, but 20 years older than that, if not more. I felt myself hesitate. Maybe this wasn't her after all. But no, she was greeting me now, giving me a hug, and talking like it was her. How was that possible? What had she been through in the last two decades to make her look so... You okay? I blinked and gave an embarrassed nod. Yeah, yeah, sorry. It's just, this is a lot. I didn't know if I'd ever see you again. She lifted up the plastic and gestured for me to go in. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Virginia let out a croak of a laugh. Guess I don't look like much, like I used to either. The inside of the house was neat, if sparsely decorated but I saw no sign of construction or other work going on. I was staring at the kerosene lamps in the hallway in the living room beyond when I registered her last comment. I turned to give her a smile I hoped didn't look too forced. No, you look good. And we've all aged, right? Virginia studied me, her eyes heavily lidded. I guess so, though you don't look that different, other than the beard, that is. She gestured to my bag. can set that down for now. I'll get you set up in one of the rooms upstairs later on. Come on in and take a load off. I did as she asked, following her into the shadowy living room and sitting down on the sofa. Suppressing a shiver, I looked around. Everything was very clean and well-maintained, and while the house was a little run down, it didn't look like it was in bad shape overall. Still, it was freezing. Even with the front door off, I think the heat would keep it warmer than this. But it was okay. I just needed to keep an open mind and focus on reconnecting. Rubbing my hands absently, I smiled at Virginia. So, how are you doing? She shrugged. I'm decent. Tired, but that's nothing new. 
I work from home, but between that and homeschooling my little girl, I'm busy most of the time. I swallowed. You have a girl? Virginia nodded. Yes. She's six this April. Away with her daddy this weekend, bless her heart. She likes her weekends with him, but she gets homesick so quick. Oh, so she's with you most of the time? Smiling, she picked up a cigarette pack from the table before reconsidering it and tossing it back down. Yeah, she is. What about you? Got a wife and kids? I chuckled and waved my hands. No, nothing like that. For a long time, I was too busy with school, and then I... I don't know. Maybe I just never met the right person. Virginia sniffed lightly. You know, there was a time when I thought I was in love with you. Her lips twisted into a smirk. Puppy dog stuff. We were just kids, you know. But it sure felt real at the time. Her eyes grew distant. But then everything kind of went to hell, didn't it? I felt my stomach clench at the bitter sadness in her voice. Look, that's part of why I wanted to come. I know I tried to apologize for not backing you up at the time, and I had my reasons and my excuses, but it was still awful. I told you I'd tell on Lamarck, too, and then I chickened out. I shouldn't have left you to deal with it alone. She looked up toward the ceiling. I know you're sorry. I knew you were sorry then. I was pissed at you at first, but not for that long. I got it. We were both scared, and truth be told, I was kind of glad to take the heat for both of us. Felt like I was protecting you or something. I frowned at her. You did? But I always thought you hated me for it. Everything always was so different after. It got so you barely wanted to be around me at all. When she looked back down, her eyes were red-rimmed and she was on the verge of tears. Like I said, protecting you. I wanted to press further, but I knew better. It had to be her call as to what she told me when. Leaning forward, I reached out and gave her hand a brief squeeze. I don't really understand, but I want to. If and when you feel like telling me. She snickered slightly as she pulled her hand away. I can tell you, shrink. You talk like one now. Offering an awkward smile, I gestured around the room. This is a cool house. You said you work from home? Telecommute or something? Virginia shook her head slightly. No, I restore antiques. I don't have internet out here, and the power's dodgy, too. She gestured at the lantern, softly hissing on the table. That's why it looks like we're camping. I had to drive into town just to email you back on my phone. Oh, I get it. Is that what the tarp in the front door is for? Getting some renovations done? She let out a short, barking laugh as she leaned forward to stare at me. Renovations? No, not quite. I just have bad luck keeping power at any place I stay for too long. Renovations aren't going to fix that. I could feel myself frowning, but I didn't care. What was she talking about? Was she just messing with me? 
punishing me by talking weirdly? I don't get what you mean, I pointed back toward the hall. What about the front? Why don't you have a door? Virginia grinned at me. Look around the house, Brad. There's not a door in the place. Not on the front or the back. Not in a single room or closet in the place. Not even on a kitchen cabinet. Sitting back, she chuckled to herself. This house has no doors. Clenching my teeth, I stood up and walked back to the hallway before making my way through the entire lower floor. She was telling the truth. Every room was lit by lanterns and there wasn't a single door, big or small, visible anywhere. A heavy dread began settling on me as I made my way back to where she waited in the living room. Trying to keep my expression neutral, I sat back down. Virginia, I don't understand. Why are you living like this? It's too cold here for no heat. And out in the middle of the woods with no doors? My God, you could have anything or anyone coming in here with you. With your little girl, I... I... Her eyes narrowed as she cut me off. You leave her out of this. She's none of your business. And believe me, I'm aware of the problems with my current situation. I chase out rats and snakes more than I'd like, but at least we're safe from worse things. I raised my eyebrows. What worse things? She eyed the cigarette pack on the table again, and when she picked it up this time, she dumped one out and lit it. The orange ember trembled slightly as she took a drag. My parents are dead, you know. I blinked at the sudden change of topic. Um, I didn't know, no. I'm so sorry. Did it happen recently? Shrugging, she took another puff. No, back then. Dad got it just a few weeks after you moved away. I'd started figuring out what was going on by then, but it didn't matter. Even when I told Mama, she didn't believe me. Thought it was just me being weird after everything I'd seen. She snickered or what I told them I'd seen. Her gaze flicked back to mine, hard and unreadable. She got it a couple of years later. I shook my head slightly. You keep saying, got it. If you don't mind me asking, how did they die? Looking up at the ceiling again, she sat silent for long enough. I began to think she wasn't going to respond at all. When she did... It was to jump again in a new direction. You know how we talked that summer about what Lamarck and those people were doing down in that place he'd made? Swallowing, I nodded. Yeah, I always figured they were part of some cult or something. Did they ever catch anybody? Virginia shook her head. Nope, they were either too smart or too powerful to get caught. But they're not that important. What they were doing is the thing. I could tell this was all stuff she prepared to tell me ahead of time. An internal script probably born out of some need for resolution, or possibly anger, or resentment for what I'd done. I wanted to hear what she had to say, but I also didn't want to hear her get such momentum that she got lost in those negative emotions. 
whatever her problems, I wanted to help her with them and truly be her friend again. To do that, she needed to talk to me, not just at me. So instead of asking what she wanted, I'd ask something slightly different. Make her stop a second and think about what she was saying. How did you find out what they were doing? Blinking, she studied me a moment before offering a small, sad smile. The dreams. I started having nightmares a few days after they went into the bunker. At first, it was just terrifying things I didn't remember. But over time, I began to understand more. It was like I was hearing snatches of music from some far-off radio. Eventually, I picked up the tune. She wiped at her eyes again. They... they weren't just killing people. They were sacrificing them, hurting and killing them to bring something through. And we got in the middle of that. Virginia glanced at me. Or at least I did. I went to respond, but when I saw she wasn't finished, I shut my mouth again. She needed help, both for her sake and her daughter. But better to hear as much of her delusion up front so I had a good idea of how bad off she really was. I didn't understand about the doors until it got Dad. After that, I pitched such a fit that Mama got rid of most of our doors. She had storm doors on the outside, but they were clear. I don't risk it now that everything is worse, but back then it seemed to be okay. She shook her head ruefully as she took a shaky drag on her cigarette. But Mama never got rid of her closet door. For whatever reason, she refused. Maybe that was her line in the sand after going along with her crazy daughter on so much of it. Virginia puffed out a breath. That's what got her. Virginia, I don't under... Her eyes cut up to mine. It can get you through doors. It can't be out for long because the ritual isn't complete. I've spent years learning more about it, even though I still don't know much. But I found the ritual, or something like it. It takes eight people. Counting my parents, it's only up to seven. Licking my lips, I decided to push forward, if only gently. Virginia, I know this may all seem very real to you, but a lot of what you are saying, it just doesn't make any kind of rational sense. I don't claim to know what you've been through, but... Her face hardened as she stood up. No, you don't, do you? You left me, and I let you because I was so afraid of it getting you too. She waved her hand around. Do you think I like living like this? Looking crazy? Losing everyone I care about? For a while I thought it was over. I stopped having the dreams after Mama. I almost tracked you down then, but something told me not to. It was too big of a risk. She was freely crying now, wiping her eyes with her palms, as she took a step back toward the hall. So I met someone else, made a life and had a baby. He thought I was crazy with the no-door thing, but he put up with it, at least for a while. It felt like my heart was breaking as she smiled at me again. But then the dreams started back, and the light stopped working half the time. He got a belly full of my crazy, 
and I barely got to keep custody of my little girl before it was all done. Virginia stabbed a finger toward me. All while you, what? Felt a little guilty while becoming a fancy doctor or whatever? Standing up, I started forward. Virginia, I'm sorry. I am guilty, and I do care about you. I just think if we start identifying the real problems here, get out. I stopped, raising an eyebrow. What? Her lip curled up as she glared at me. You heard me. Get out. Running a hand through her hair, she turned away. I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I saw you. I, I wanted things to be different, but I see it now. I think I always saw it. Taking a deep breath, I walked to her and gently put my hand on her shoulder. Please, let me stay and let's talk. I really do want to help. Her shoulders tensed and then fell, as though bowed by some enormous weight only she could see or understand. Did you ever wonder how Charlie would have found that place? Huh? She didn't turn around, and her voice was just barely above a whisper. Remy Lamarck was a creep, but he wasn't an idiot. He'd done too much for too long without getting caught. And he, what, just leaves his torture chamber unlocked for Charlie to wander into? I dropped my hand from his shoulder as a chill slid up my spine. What are you saying? She turned to look up at me, her face pale and drawn. I'm saying I don't think we stopped anything. I think this was always how it was going to be. Looking down, she swallowed and took a step back. I'm sorry. Please, leave now. I fought the urge to try again, but instead I let the moment of terrible silence spool out between us, the threat of too many years and too much pain. I wasn't giving up on helping her or mending things between us, but I had to do it on her timetable and respecting her feelings and wishes. For the time being, I needed to leave her alone. So I flew back home, wondering at every step if I was making the wrong choice, the easy choice, the coward's choice again. But no, I wasn't going to let this go. It may take me months or even years, but I was going to find a way to help her and be a part of Virginia's life again. The next few days were hard, and when I got home from work tonight and saw my phone lighting up with an Oregon number, I was torn between excitement that it was her and terror it was someone else saying something had happened to her or her daughter. Hearing Virginia's voice, my vision blurred a little as I gave a relieved laugh. Hey, I'm so... I'm so glad you called. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing decent. I... I shouldn't be calling, but I can't help it. I don't think it'll make a difference, but I need you to know. Oh, okay. What's up? The thing they were trying to bring over? The thing that is coming through? It can't take just anybody. Only those that are involved in the ritual. I held my breath. I hoped she was past talking like that, 
but at least she was talking to me at all. Okay, you mean like the people they sacrificed? Yeah, that, but not just that. It can take people performing the ritual too, or people that become a part of it through some other means. Like what? Her voice was thick with emotion. Like lying to your parents, or believing you're a little girl when she says she and her best friend have been inside that place. So you think you're part of the ritual now, too? And your parents died because of that? What about the police? Have the cops that went in there been gotten too? Deputies, and no, I checked. One died of a heart attack a few years ago, but the rest are all alive so far as I can tell. I think it got my parents because they were my family, or maybe because they carried my lie to the people that searched. I don't have all the answers, but it's been after me for a long time now. It made me a prisoner for most of my life, always terrified it would get me or my little girl, or someone else I love. Puffing out of breath, I gripped the phone tighter. It's going to be okay, Virginia. I'm going to help you with this, I swear. I'm going to help you get your life back and feel safe again, okay? I could barely hear Virginia as she sighed her words into the phone. I know you will. You already have. I have. How? This thing... It's been around the whole time, just watching and waiting for another chance to push through, watching and listening. So the other day, right after you were gone, I told it. I told it that you were the one really responsible for the ritual getting interrupted. Whether it was a part of its plan or not, I'd only gone to my parents because of you. I glanced up as the light in the corner of the room flickered feebly, then went out. My mouth went dry. So you... You think you sick this thing on me instead? I don't know. Part of me hopes not, even though I want my baby to be safe and to have my life back. But I do still love you, too. That's why I called... I sat up in my chair, glancing around the room. Nothing out of place, and the overhead lights were fine. Not even any doors other than the closet behind me. I shifted uncomfortably as I glanced back at the closed door. Why now? Why not tell me right after you did it? I could hear her crying now, but her voice was steady when she answered a moment later. "'because I'm calling from the house. "'The lights came back on a few minutes ago. "'I dropped the phone as the room plunged into darkness. "'I could hear Virginia yelling, "'but I didn't have the time to search or even answered. "'I needed to get out before... "'I froze at a new sound behind me, "'the creaking of the closet door as it opened.' I hope you enjoyed The House Without Doors by author Brandon Fairclough, as performed by yours truly. 
If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Go to simplyscarypodcast.com slash faircloth. Once more, that's simplyscarypodcast.com slash faircloth, spelled F-A-I-R-C-L-O-T-H. That link will take you to Brandon's page on Amazon.com, where you'll find a number of his collected works for sale, including many I'm sure you've never heard before. So what are you waiting for? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash faircloth and pick up your copies today. If you decide to give any of this talented author's books a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word, and be sure to let him know you heard about him on this program and that Otis Jiry sent you. It means a lot to both of us and helps more than you could imagine. Thanks again for your support of tonight's featured author and of indie horror. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well, at the Otis Jari channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jari. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. 
If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.